Hello everyone, you're listening to episode 41 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And just as a warning, today's case discusses domestic abuse, so listener discretion is advised. A lot of the content for today's episode was taken from an episode of Britain's Darkest Taboos, and the episode, as well as all the other articles I read, are, as always, all linked in the description box. Today's case is set in Wakefield in West Yorkshire and starts with a girl called Alyssa Frank. Alyssa was born in 1993 and she spent her early years growing up with her mum and her younger sister Kimberly. The pair also had another sister, however there are very little reports about her. This is either because she was much younger than Kimberly and Alyssa or because she didn't live with the sisters and therefore she isn't mentioned again in this case. Kimberly and Alyssa Frank were more than sisters, they were best friends, and they relied on each other heavily to navigate their way through their teenage years. Their mum wasn't around much, and the girls only had one other friend at school. Her name was Samantha Sykes. Alyssa was always so mesmerised that Samantha wanted to be friends with her and Kimberly. In Alyssa's eyes, Samantha was the prettiest girl in the class and super popular, and Alyssa couldn't believe her luck that Samantha wanted to be friends with her. Soon after they met, Alyssa, Kimberly and Samantha became the best of friends. Unfortunately, growing up with little support from their parents meant that Kimberly and Alyssa started to fall into the wrong crowds, and by the time Alyssa turned 14, she had started missing school, staying out late and drinking. Samantha didn't really follow in the Frank sisters' footsteps. Her mum remembers more than one occasion when the police rang her to find out if Alyssa and Kimberly were at her house because they'd been out causing havoc. On these occasions, Samantha would always be tucked up in bed asleep, oblivious to the chaos her best friends were causing out and about. Samantha used to tell Alyssa that she could do better, that if she put her head down and focused, she could do well at school and make something of her life, but Alyssa wasn't interested. Then, shortly after this conversation, Alyssa and Kimberly's mum moved house, and this meant that the girls had to change schools. They still spoke to Samantha, but their contact was less frequent than it had been before. Both Alyssa and Kimberly were angry at the world, angry at their life, and angry at their mother, who had forced them to move away from the one friend they had. Both girls took to writing poetry as an outlet for their anger, and this was something they found a lot of comfort in. Unfortunately, things got even more turbulent for the girls in 2007 when Alyssa was put into care and Kimberly was sent away to a foster home outside of Yorkshire. It's unclear why the girls were removed from their home, but reports state that Wakefield Social Services made the decision after they'd received concerns that Kimberly was being sexually exploited by older men and that she had relationship difficulties with her mother. God. As a result, both sisters were taken into care and became, in inverted commas, looked after by the council. For the first time ever, the girls were split up and they both felt alone and vulnerable. God, that's so sad. It's really sad. So this care home was where Alyssa met Ahmed Otak, a boy who said he was 15 years old, who had come to England from Afghanistan. Alyssa was 14 and wasn't really interested in boys. She certainly wasn't interested in Ahmed and found him to be very intense and quite creepy. She didn't spend much time with him when she was in the care system, but a few years later when she was out of care, she bumped into him randomly in the street. She started talking to him and he completely love-bombed her. He bought her gift after gift and played heavily on the fact that Alyssa was alone and didn't have Kim anymore. He told Alyssa that he had all these grandiose plans that he wanted to do with her and he promised to take her away to France for a romantic holiday. This was all new territory for Alyssa, but of course, she really liked the attention 
and for the first time in her life she felt special. She was depressed and she had nobody, but now she had Ahmed. Ahmed told her that they could move away and live somewhere else, they could move to a different country, or they could move away from the north and live in the south of England. All these promises and thoughts of a better life overwhelmed and excited Alyssa, and she quickly made the step of moving in with Ahmed. Suddenly, she had a routine to her life and she was surrounded by love. She had someone she could look after and, more importantly, someone to look after her. During this time, Alyssa was still in contact with her friend Samantha, but their contact became less and less frequent, especially when Samantha started raising concerns about Ahmed and the way he treated Alyssa. Samantha felt that Ahmed controlled Alyssa too much and that he looked way older than he said he was. Alyssa thought Samantha was being ridiculous and maybe a bit jealous, and she replied to her messages less and less frequently. The thing was, Samantha was right to be wary of Ahmed. His behaviour started to change, and slowly but surely he started to control every aspect of Alyssa's life. He stopped her being friends with other boys, telling her that it was just cultural. Where he was from, girls weren't allowed to be friends with boys, and to Alyssa, this did make sense. She didn't want to offend his culture, and so she cut off all ties to any of her friends or acquaintances who were male. Soon, however, this escalated, and within a few months, Alyssa was no longer allowed to even look at another man, not even a stranger in a shop or out in the street. Systematically, he broke her down and told her to stop wearing certain clothes, to stop watching certain TV programmes, and to even stop reading certain books. He stopped her going to the library, and then he stopped her from being able to do anything at all without his permission. This escalation happened quickly but quietly, and Alyssa barely noticed how much her life had changed and how little autonomy she had left. What sort of time span was this over? Um, months, like nine months probably. Okay. So in Alyssa's mind, she loved Ahmed, and she didn't want to offend his culture or where he'd come from, and so she did everything that he asked her to. Ahmed's behaviour then started to get violent. At first, this started with just violent words disguised as love. He would tell Alyssa that he wished he could wipe out the whole of humanity so that it was just him and her. At first, Alyssa saw this as romantic. She had never experienced love before. She had hardly even experienced friendship, apart from the exception of Samantha, and it wasn't as if she'd learned or seen relationship traits from witnessing her parents. She had no idea what love meant or how people acted when they were in love, and to her, this felt like it was right. Then, Ahmed's behaviour changed even more, and he no longer tried to disguise his violence as anything else. He started a, quote, kill list that contained a mixture of people Alyssa knew and random people they'd seen out and about. He'd see a random small child at the supermarket and put her on his kill list, and then he'd say to Alyssa, "'If you leave me, I'll kill the people on this list.'" If you stay with me, you'll save the lives of children. He told Alyssa that he'd petrol bomb her mum's house and that he'd find and kill her friend Samantha and her sister Kimberly. God, that's just awful, isn't it? I can't imagine how, yeah, trapped you'd feel. It is because awful. ultimately, yeah, I think I don't know. The part of you probably knows like it's not rational and it's possibly not true, but just that fear and all the like little things he's already done up to that point have create create like that kind of toxic environment don't they where it feels plausible and those threats probably felt so real and just so confusing like you said like you know she really felt she loved him and thought this is what love looks like and I just can't imagine how much sort of like anguish and confusion there must have been inside her like you know why 
yeah why is love like this like this isn't Mm -hmm. fair and yeah Mm -hmm. just awful yeah completely and I think I think it was kind of at this point that Alyssa started to notice that his behavior wasn't normal and I think at this point she did become quite fearful of him and she Mm. was now kind of only staying with him through fear and kind of not through love which is why originally she was staying with him I think you are right at this point yeah she was just confused as to why he was acting in this way but she she had now kind of crossed that boundary where she was actually quite fearful of him and I mean for Amit this is like amazing for him you know he had Alyssa right where he wanted her she was kind of just hanging in the balance and he was really all she had at this point and I think that was also you know again adding to why she felt that she needed to stay with him um and yeah just those feelings of why is love like this I guess yeah and I think that's a pattern that you see a lot either um people who might be quite isolated to start with or a abusive partner like does tend to seek to isolate their partner because mm-hmm. that's the only way you need to remove like any voices of mm-hmm. like rationale and support in someone's life in order to be able to break them down mm-hmm. and yeah I suppose for him he had kind of less of a job to do if she was already didn't have like a huge support network or lots of friends and family and stuff Mm -hmm. but yeah yeah. well that's what I think I think you're like spot on with that um he had definitely isolated her massively from anyone that she had and like you said it was probably easier for him to do that in the first instance anyway because she didn't have a lot of friends and obviously her sister had moved away and things like that but then in the summer of 2011 Kimberly moved back to Wakefield and she was as I'm sure you can imagine so eager to see her sister Alyssa obviously though Alyssa was scared of seeing Kimberly in case Ahmed followed and threatened her Kimberly's move back to Wakefield kind of what we were just speaking about threatened to impact everything Ahmed had created for himself and he became even more threatening towards Alyssa and more obsessed with keeping her away from people during this time Alyssa barely spoke to her friend Samantha at all Samantha started a career modeling and she was really good at it She was so proud of her new career and the work she was putting in. However, outside of work, she was still deeply concerned for Alyssa. She knew that the reason Alyssa wasn't responding to her messages was because Ahmad was controlling her, but she didn't know how to change the situation. Samantha spoke to Kimberly, and the two reported their concerns about Alyssa to social services. Alyssa was nearing her 18th birthday, though, and so the authorities didn't do anything about it. Therefore, Samantha reported Ahmed Otak to the UK border agency and the police, but neither the border agency or the police investigated her complaints. Mm. Meanwhile, Ahmed's abuse escalated further. One day in September 2011, he came home from work and walked up to the bedroom where Alyssa was. He pulled a huge knife from behind his back and held it up to Alyssa's throat. He told her he was going to kill her, and Alyssa believed him. She started crying. He retaliated by grabbing a sewing needle and he told her that if she screamed, he would sew her mouth shut. Oh, fucking hell. He then threw the knife to the floor and started hitting her. This violent attack changed Alyssa and for the first time she had pure clarity in her mind. She knew that she had to leave him. Of course, this was incredibly dangerous and she knew this. Ahmed had continuously told Alyssa that if she left, he would kill her friends and family and of course Alyssa believed him. In September 2011, Alyssa left Ahmed, but he told her that if she didn't come home, he would throw acid in her face and murder her mother. Scared and terrified for her family, Alyssa went back to Ahmed after just a week. Oh, no. 
She started putting provisions in place to leave him for good. She told Kimberly that if she ever sent her a text that was just the letter D, then it meant her life was in danger and Kimberly should call the police. In February 2012, Alyssa left again. She said that on the day that she did leave, she hadn't planned it. She hadn't known that that day would be the day that she would leave, but whilst Ahmed was out at work, she found herself packing a bag. She went to her mum's house and asked if she could move back in, and her mother welcomed her with open arms. Things were turbulent at first, but soon it seemed that Ahmed had accepted the breakup, and Alyssa started to relax a little bit. Samantha was so happy to have her friend back, and Kimberly was so pleased that her sister was now safe. Alyssa and Kimberly started planning their future together. Kimberly lived in a small council flat, and the sisters planned to find a bigger one that they could both move into together. Then, a month later, on Friday the 9th of March 2012, Alyssa asked Ahmed to bring the belongings that she'd left at his to Kimberly's flat. Kimberly stood by Alyssa for protection when Ahmed entered the flat. He entered the lounge and dumped a bag on the floor. Ahmed turned to Alyssa and asked her if she was coming back to him, to which Alyssa replied, no. Ahmed stood still and then pulled a packet of cigarettes from his pocket. He reached out and offered one to Kimberly, who leaned forward and took a cigarette from the pack. The next thing Alyssa remembers is her sister falling backwards onto her, causing Alyssa to fall onto some furniture. She turned and Kimberly fell off of her onto the floor, whilst Ahmed screamed at Kimberly that she was a, quote, stupid bitch. He was animated and excited, and Alyssa watched in complete shock as Ahmed held the knife above his head and then repeatedly stabbed Kimberly with it. Oh my god. He screamed at Alyssa that she should never have left him. Then he stabbed Kimberly in her throat, and Alyssa said that it was this moment that snapped her out of her shocked, catatonic state. She said that up until the moment she heard the gurgling in Kimberly's throat, she hadn't processed in her mind that Ahmed was killing her. She'd known he was hurting her, but her brain just could not process that her sister was being killed right in front of her. Kimberly stopped moving, and Alyssa knew that she had died. She scrambled backwards towards the sofa just as Ahmed came up by her and sat next to her. Alyssa said that he was acting hyper and excited. He leaned over her and tried to kiss Alyssa, and then howled with laughter as he licked Kimberly's blood off the knife and then spat it back at Kimberly's lifeless body. Alyssa sat still, rendered in a state of complete shock. However, Ahmed wasn't finished. He grabbed Alyssa's mobile and held it up to her. He told her to ring Samantha and tell her to come to Kimberly's flat. Alyssa cried and said no, but Ahmed said that if he didn't, he'd kill her too. Alyssa rang Samantha and asked her to come to Kim's, all the while desperately hoping that Samantha would hear the fear in her voice and she would call the police. She hung up, praying that Samantha wasn't on her way over and that the police were coming instead. Samantha's mum got home from work and found a note in the kitchen. It read, Gone to see Alyssa. Be back soon. Kiss, Sammy. At Kimberly's flat, Ahmed cut some cables from Kimberly's speakers and TV and used them to tie Alyssa's hands and feet. Ahmed then went and hid in the hallway, waiting for Samantha's arrival. Oh God, I can't bear it. When Samantha arrived, she walked straight into the flat. Alyssa heard her call out her name, and then she heard terrified screaming. Ahmed dragged Samantha into the living room and screamed at Alyssa to watch what he was doing. He stabbed Samantha repeatedly, and Alyssa heard the same gurgling sound that she'd heard come from her sister, and she knew that her best friend was dying. 
Amma dragged Samantha's lifeless body over to Kimberly's body and both the girls lay next to each other. Amma then took Samantha's car keys from her pocket and searched Kimberly's pockets too, stealing the money that she'd had. Amma then picked up Alyssa and put the bloody knife up to her throat. He carried her out to Samantha's car and put her in the boot. He told Alyssa that he was taking her to Dover to get on a ferry and that they were going to make their way to Afghanistan. Back at Samantha's home, her mother Julie was becoming increasingly concerned that her daughter was still not home. She drove to Kimberly's flat but couldn't see her daughter's car and so she didn't go up to the flat. Julie said that she remembers feeling like a part of her was missing. She said she didn't know what it was, perhaps mother's intuition, but she knew her daughter had died. She called the police but they weren't concerned as they didn't deem her missing. Samantha had said she was going to visit her friend and she'd only been gone a few hours. In Samantha's car, Alyssa, still in the boot, couldn't stop crying and Ahmed kept yelling at her to shut up. His mood then changed and he told her everything was going to be fine, they were going to be together again, away from Yorkshire and away from all the people who had kept them apart. Shortly before midnight, having driven for five hours, Ahmed pulled into the port of Dover. Ahmed told Alyssa that this was the way he'd illegally come into the country and this was the way they were going to leave it. At the port, they saw another man who said that he was an illegal immigrant trying to leave England for France. Ahmed and the man found a lorry driver who was willing to let them on his lorry on the next ferry out. Ahmed put Alyssa in the back of the lorry with the other man and then, because he was getting in the front with the lorry driver, he gave Alyssa the knife that he had wrapped up in a jumper. Alyssa, feeling the enormous weight of everything that had happened that day, burst into hysterical tears. The man who was with her in the lorry asked her what was happening. He asked her why she was trying to sneak out of the country when she was clearly British. Alyssa told him everything that had happened that day. She told him how Ahmed had killed her best friend and her sister in front of her, and how he'd then kidnapped her. The man called out to Ahmed to open the doors of the back of the lorry, claiming that he'd overheard some other guys talking. Ahmed opened the doors and the man got out. He pulled Ahmed to the side and started speaking to him, telling him that he'd just overheard that this lorry wasn't going to France after all and that they needed to find a new lorry. Alyssa knew that this was her only chance to escape and she jumped out of the lorry. She started running towards some houses that she could see. She could hear Ahmed running behind her, screaming at her. Alyssa knew she had to outrun him, because even though he no longer had the knife, she knew he'd kill her if he caught her. Alyssa kept running and screaming. Then, a man opened his door to shout at whoever was making all the noise, and Alyssa ran straight into his home, screaming at him to call the police. On the phone to the police, she told the responder to send someone in Wakefield round to her sister's flat to find Kimberly and Samantha. The police in Wakefield forced entry into Kim's flat, and they found Kimberly and Samantha lying dead in a room that was covered in blood. Meanwhile, the police at Dover had picked up Alyssa and had found and picked up Ahmed too. Good. The officers started driving Alyssa back to Wakefield. It's unclear if they also drove Ahmed back to Wakefield separately or if he was detained in custody in Dover. In Wakefield, the police turned up at Julie's home and told her the devastating news that they'd found Samantha's car in Dover and that they'd found two deceased females in Kimberly's flat. Julie knew that one of those girls was her daughter. Just to mention, this next 40 seconds or so is quite graphic. 
The medical examiner concluded that 17-year-old Kimberly Frank has sustained 15 stab wounds and she had suffered internal and fatal wounds to her lungs, her heart, her spleen, her liver and her kidney. The most serious wound had been a massive stab wound to her neck which had severed her left carotid artery and had been delivered with such force that it had damaged Kimberly's spine. 18-year-old Samantha Sykes sustained 32 stab wounds and endured two wounds to her chest that penetrated her lungs, heart, liver and spleen. These blows were delivered with so much force that her ribs were split. Her neck was also cut and her carotid artery was also severed. Both girls had an array of defensive wounds to their arms and hands. In the police car on the way back to Yorkshire, the police questioned Alyssa on the two deceased females they'd found at Kimberley's flat and questioned how Alyssa had known they were there. Alyssa started telling them about what Ahmed had done and how he'd kidnapped her, but the officers didn't believe her. Halfway through the journey on their way back to Wakeford from Dover, Alyssa was charged with the murders of her sister and her best friend. What? Can you honestly imagine on how you'd grounds? feel? What? I don't understand what evidence... She did, to be fair, she is the one who alerted the police to the fact that the bodies were in that flat. Like, from the the police's perspective. I don't see how that's reason to charge her, though. No, actually, that's a really interesting point. I actually agree with that. Yeah, they could have just brought her in for questioning or just questioned her as a person of interest. Charging her does seem, like, quite premature at this stage. I do actually agree with that. I mean, I suppose it depends on if she's... I'd be, I'd, I don't know, I'm interested here because obviously she she was under duress in an awful situation, but I suppose the only thing is she called Samantha mm. round. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, I suppose like they've just... Oh, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like it's premature, yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, actually, you saying that has made, yeah, has made me think about that, and I think it is quite premature. But, I mean, to be honest, it's a bit irrelevant because once they were back in Wakefield... Um, Alyssa was then questioned at length and they soon put together a story of domestic violence and abuse and they told Alyssa that she was no longer a suspect in their murder inquiry. Good. So Ahmed's police interview wasn't quite as easy as this one. He spun lie after lie about who he was, how he'd come to the country and about his age. He told the officers that he was under 18 and they couldn't charge him as an adult and the police had no documentation to corroborate what he was saying because he had come into the country illegally six years before. They decided to x-ray him and take dental records to determine how old he was. The test wouldn't be able to tell them what Ahmed's exact age was, but it would tell them whether he was over 21 or not. As suspected, the test showed that he was over the age of 21 and therefore could face all legal ramifications that the court could give. After this finding, Ahmed Otak pled guilty to the murders of Kimberly Frank and Samantha Sykes. He was then held in custody for eight months until his sentencing hearing. Before the sentence could be given, the judge had a legal duty to address the situation regarding Ahmed's age so that future appeals couldn't be made on the basis that he had been tried illegally as an adult. Mr Justice Colson concluded that Ahmed was over the age of 21 at the time of the murders and therefore the mandatory sentence was imprisonment for life. If Ahmed had been found to be under the age of 21, the mandatory sentence would have been custody for life. The judge said that he had no doubt that Ahmed Otak was over 21 and that he was over 21 at the time he had committed the murders. He said that the evidence he had for this was that when Ahmed entered the country as an illegal immigrant, he gave his date of birth as the 1st of June 1991, which would make him 21 at the time of sentencing, and 20 years and 9 months at the time he killed Kimberly and Samantha. 
Alyssa had told the police that Ahmed had boasted that he'd lied to the authorities about his true date of birth, and the judge said that unsuccessful asylum seekers such as Ahmed only lied to authorities to understate their age, knowing that the younger an asylum seeker is, the more favourable the treatment they are likely to receive. Mm. He said that, additionally, Ahmed had shown himself to be a practised liar, and that was evidenced by the hours of police interview footage that the court had, showing Ahmed repeatedly lying about almost every aspect of his life, his relationship with Alyssa and the murders he'd committed. He also supported his findings regarding Ahmed's age by referencing the expert evidence provided by Lucina Hackman, a medical examiner who examined the scans and x-rays of Ahmed. This expert concluded that her expert opinion was that he was definitely over the age of 21 and that there was a strong probability that he was much older than that. On the findings as to Ahmed's age, Mr Justice Colson sentenced Ahmed Otak to life imprisonment for the murders of Kimberly Frank and Samantha Sykes. He said, quote, You are an Afghan national whose asylum claim was rejected when you illegally entered the United Kingdom in 2007. However, you were granted a period of humanitarian protection until the 5th of November 2013. It now seems that this was the direct consequence of the lies you told about your age. You were wholly undeserving of any such protection. You repaid the generosity of the authorities and the taxpayers of this country by murdering two of its citizens in a carefully planned and entirely cold-blooded way. You claimed humanitarian protection, but you showed yourself incapable of behaving like a human being. Alyssa Frank was too frightened of you to report you to the police. It is one of the many tragedies of this case that her friend, Samantha Sykes, was not frightened and reported you to both the United Kingdom Border Agency and the police. Unhappily, nothing came of those complaints. End quote. I'm so pleased that that was kind of acknowledged in his statement because so many cases we talk about, you like we we know that it was reported because of like your research and stuff but it never seems to really be acknowledged at like mm -hmm. the end when there's an awful outcome like mm -hmm. so so many perpetrators that have like, had interactions with the police for very similar crimes and stuff and it never see yeah it just never seems to hold any weight but actually to hear him say someone did report you mm. like it's, a, it's such a tiny thing but to acknowledge that samantha took all the right steps to protect her best friend mm. i don't know it's there's something i feel like kind of special about it particularly yeah. because like as we've heard Alyssa didn't really have anyone else and to know that actually the one person she really did have did kind of do her best yeah it's almost a little bit of a positive silver lining that he could like acknowledge that and hopefully mm. and I haven't found anything kind of to it but um hopefully you know someone looked into that I mean there have been uh, inquiries and case reviews following mm, this sure this murder investigation so yeah the fact I think that the judge acknowledged it uh, would definitely have you know helped with those investigations and things like that yeah so, during the police interviews, Ahmed had stated that he had bought the murder weapon on the way to Kimberly's flat, but that he'd purchased it to use on himself and not on the girls. He said that he wanted to kill himself in front of Alyssa, and that Alyssa had killed her sister and her friend because she'd wanted to be with Ahmed. During the sentencing hearing, the judge said that he rejected this, and that he truly believed that Ahmed had taken the knife there to do what he had always talked about doing, and that was harming those who were close to Alyssa Frank. He also made reference to Mr. Barami, the illegal immigrant who was also trying to leave England, who had helped Alyssa. Speaking directly to Ahmed Otak, the judge said, quote, 
To his credit, Mr. Barami abandoned his own attempt to leave the country. His courage saved Alyssa Frank. He lied to you that the lorry was not going to France after all. When you had got off the lorry, Mr. Barami grabbed the knife and did not give it back, allowing Alyssa Frank to run away to some nearby houses. He then snapped the knife, thus preventing you from using it. He sought refuge in another house until you were arrested by the police. End quote. So I put that in because I just think that's quite interesting to know that, again, the judge like acknowledged mm. the fact that this other yeah, person who was obviously there illegally and who was trying to do something illegal by leaving the country in a lorry on a ferry, that he'd actually put himself out of there and abandoned his own attempts to yeah, leave the country to help Alyssa. I think, again, it's just a massive credit to the judge for even referencing that. Yeah, well, and, and it's a credit to him like absolutely correctly said like he yeah gave up a a chance and yeah whatever he was trying to go back to do it was yeah he for a complete stranger like it was a complete random act of kindness that Mm -hmm. saved her life absolutely it was a complete random act of kindness and it was amazing yeah and exactly it saved her life so turning to the sentencing, Mr. Justice Colson said that he was in no doubt that the seriousness of Ahmed's offences was exceptionally high. He said, You killed two people in the brutal way that you had planned. You forced Alyssa Frank to take part and then abducted her. And your treatment of her sister's body demonstrates at least a degree of sadism. Thus, I consider that making a whole life order is open to me. And although they are rare, they are not unknown. But I must also reflect on the fact that you are young, on the basis set out already, I find that you are at least 22, and that you pleaded guilty, thereby saving Alyssa Frank from the dreadful ordeal of giving evidence. Taking those two factors into account, I consider that it would not be appropriate to make a whole life order. I consider that a life sentence with a lengthy minimum term is a sufficiently severe penalty." The judge remarked that because Ahmed had murdered two people and that the nature and the manner in which they were carried out was found to be of high seriousness, the starting point for sentencing was 30 years. Uh, So I now here have quite a lengthy statement from the judge in which he goes through all the aggravating and mitigating factors into how he came to his overall determination of sentencing Ahmed Otak to a minimum of 33 years and 124 days in prison. So... He determined that the starting point, as we just heard, was 30 years, and then he went on to say, quote, There is a raft of aggravating factors which have not been taken into account in the calculation of the starting point, and which significantly increases the length of the appropriate minimum term. First, as I have said, these murders were the result of a significant degree of premeditation and planning. You had told Alyssa Frank months before, when you were still in a relationship with her, that if she ended it, you would kill her family and friends. When she left you, you put that plan into action and you purchased the knife for that specific purpose and you took it to Kimberly's house. Moreover, you killed Kimberly and then you calmly waited for Samantha to arrive before you killed her too. This is the clearest possible premeditation. Secondly, these murders were committed with a knife taken to the flat for that sole purpose. Thirdly, the killings were carried out using grossly excessive force. In each case, you cut the throat of your victims and inflicted multiple stab wounds. Fourthly, there was a deliberate and gratuitous violence against both victims. Spitting blood on Kimberly's body was an act of bestiality. Indeed, throughout, you behaved like an animal. Fifthly, there was your use of duress and threats against Alyssa Frank to enable you to kill Samantha Sykes. 
Samantha Sykes only went to the house in the first place because you had forced Alyssa Frank to ask her to come and threatened to kill Alyssa if she did not cooperate. You made Alyssa Frank an unwitting vehicle for the murder of her friend Samantha because of your threats to kill her and she was there against her will when you murdered her sister and her friend. Yeah, and that is just incredibly cruel. I mean, I don't know, maybe for her it wasn't insignificant given that she watched her friend and sister die. But actually, like, I do agree with that to have unwittingly and unwantingly have become some kind of like sick accessory mm-hmm. to his crimes is just another thing that she'll have to live with. And I just think, yeah, somehow it's just especially cruel, isn't it? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think this kind of goes to the judge's final point on the aggravating factors in that um, there was like an exceptionally serious psychological effect that this all had on Alyssa Frank. And it's exactly because of what Mm. you said, because it's only human to sit there and constantly think in any situation, really, what could I have done differently? And for this, I'm sure Alyssa had so many times and so many, so many thoughts going around her head of, well, what happens if I hadn't rung her? What happens if I had just said this on the phone? What happens if I had given her Mm. a clue? What could I have done differently? And that's Awful. And survivor's guilt, even just Absolutely. like ultimately, he gave, he made some sort of like sick ultimatum, and actually, I don't believe it for a minute. Like, I think whatever would have happened, like they all would have died. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, he wasn't a man who was in the business of being like rational and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But I just think yeah that's such an interesting thing like the psychological effect because it is worth something it does matter like we always say these crimes don't happen for a day like they're relived time and time again for Mm -hmm. the victims involved absolutely yeah definitely it's the psychological effect and the impact it would have had on Alyssa. I mean, it, it was huge. You know, she's gone on to say, um, do interviews and things like that. We can talk about that a bit later. But it was a huge, it had a huge impact on her. Like, of course it would. So those were the aggravating factors that the judge went through. And he said that in his opinion, uh, these aggravating factors were so serious that they increased the minimum term uh, before a consideration of any mitigating factors to 40 years. So... As to the mitigating factors, he said, There is first a suggestion that you suffered from a mental disorder or mental disability. However, the highest that it can be put in the report produced on your behalf by Dr. Puri is that you came to the UK in 2007, you had an adjustment disorder, but not depression, and that you may have been depressed in the week leading up to the killings. Of course, the difficulty with this whole report is that it is based on your own version of events, the reliability of which must be doubtful to say the least. What is more, Dr. Puri is very clear that any mental disorder that you may have had did not affect your criminal culpability. He said expressly, you did not have an abnormality of mental functioning which could have given rise to the defence of diminished responsibility. Accordingly, whilst Dr. Puri's evidence might justify a modest reduction in the minimum term, it is not a significant mitigating factor. It had no real effect on your criminal culpability. It does not alter the basic position that you are an inadequate man with controlling and violent tendencies who, out of childish jealousy and vicious spite, murdered two innocent women in cold blood. I consider that your mental disorder cannot justify a reduction of more than two years from the 40 years previously noted. The next mitigating factor urged on your behalf is your youth, which I have already taken into account. It was one of the principal reasons why I did not impose a whole life term. Even if a further reduction is warranted on account of it, that reduction could not be significant, otherwise I would be double counting. But it is not a factor which I should ignore altogether. 
in all the circumstances of the case, I would reduce the minimum term by a further three years to reflect your youth. The final matter of potential mitigation urged on me is the absence of any previous convictions. In the light of all the circumstances of this horrific case, I decline to make any reduction for the fact that you have no convictions. In truth, all that means is that you were not previously prosecuted for making the vile threats to Alyssa Frank that you eventually carried out. Accordingly, the 40 years is reduced by a total of five years by reference to these mitigating factors. Next is the credit for your guilty plea. I have already taken this into account. It is the other main reason why I've decided not to impose a whole life order. Furthermore, I do not agree with the proposition that your guilty plea was entered at the first opportunity. On the 5th of October 2012, when you pleaded guilty, the trial had already been adjourned once and refixed. That was your first formal acceptance of your responsibility, although I accept that he had been assumed for some time before that that you would not deny killing both women. In any case, the evidence against you was overwhelming. In the circumstances, I am only prepared to make a further reduction of one year to reflect your late guilty plea. I impose no separate penalty in respect of the possession of the knife. Thus, the total reduction from the maximum 40-year term noted above is six years, leaving a net figure of 34 years. From that falls to be deducted the 241 days that you have spent on remand, giving a minimum term of 33 years and 124 days. He then went on to say, Ahmed Otak, you are sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 33 years and 124 days. To put that another way, so that you and everyone else in the court understands the effect of this sentence, you will not even be considered for release until the year 2046. End quote. So what do you think about that? I think it's quite interesting to hear how he got to his precise term, and I am so pleased that he didn't reduce the um, sentence anymore for the fact that he didn't have any previous convictions. Yeah, oh my God. When they mentioned that, I was so angry because I thought, are you joking? Like, you know, the past year effectively is just one enormous previous conviction um so yeah i was really pleased that he referenced it but actually didn't act upon it because Mm -hmm. i think hopefully i think yeah not that i to be honest i can't imagine that ahmed will go away from this and look back and reflect all the things he did wrong i don't necessarily think he'll ever view the world and acknowledge that how like heinous what he did was but equally i think it's important that someone says to him like I don't take that into account like I do think effective because what he's really saying is I do think you have previous convictions you just yeah. weren't caught for them 100%. Um, so yeah I think that was very good and yeah it's interesting to hear how it all plays out I mean in some ways you kind of think when you think about all the aggravating factors that took it up to 10 years were like the mitigating ones that took it down really of any kind of equal merit I mean like his age um like the judge said, he'd already taken that into account. So I do kind of think actually he did double count it really by I do think so too, yeah, I think that too. A few more years. And you just kind of think, is him being young equal to her, like the psychological trauma that Alyssa experienced? I don't think so. That said, there does have to be merit behind our sentencing systems. Otherwise, you know, you don't differentiate between offenders and it just becomes a, yeah... You, no person could just randomly put a number on it do you know what I mean so I think mm-hmm. it is important that there was that kind of thought that went into it um but I think it is that the flip side is it's quite hard hearing them kind of compared like you know that's worth plus three years that's worth minus three mm-hmm. years and actually when you're listening you kind of think mm, well I don't think so like 
he's young and actually that's already a gift for him that he could possibly walk free mm-hmm. on the flip side. Alyssa's never ever going to forget what she saw that day. Mm. And on by that way, you kind of think, mm, I'm not really sure they are equal, but yeah, it's interesting. Definitely interesting. No, I totally agree. Alyssa is never going to get her sister back or her best friend back. Julie is never going to get her daughter, Samantha back. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't, I, I do also think actually to your point that he double counted on the um, age of Ahmed um and also like how do you know how old he is like you've already said that you think that he's way older than 22 um yeah so yeah i agree but yeah again it is quite interesting as you all know where i can i do try to find out where the families or victims are now and what they're doing so julie samantha's mother established the samantha sykes foundation trust and the trust works with non-profit organizations who support victims of child sexual exploitation The foundation does this by working with specialist services and the care system to provide support for children in care and those that have left care. Julie said that Samantha was murdered because of the support she selflessly gave to two young people who were, in inverted commas, looked after by the local authority. Two girls who needed love, protection and guidance and who would have benefited from the work of a charity like the one she has set up in Samantha's memory. Julie has continuously spoken out against the Wakefield children's social care system that she said failed her daughter and the Frank sisters. She said that if they had provided the appropriate level of care to Kimberly and Alyssa, Samantha and Kimberly would be alive today. I do get what she's saying and I think from my perspective I am inclined to agree. So Wakefield Social Services pulled Kimberly and Alyssa from their homes and put them into care. Then they did no follow-up. Like, the investigation into whether Kimberly was being sexually exploited by older men was never finished. That investigation was never done. The care home was, of course, where Alyssa met Ahmed Otek. And also not to mention that they had Ahmed in the care home despite him being many years older than the age of 15 that he was claiming at the time. After Alyssa left care, they never followed up with her to see where she was. Um, And, you know, if they had, maybe Alyssa would have had the chance to tell someone about the abuse that she was facing. I think also on top of this, which I find absolutely staggering, was that in the five years Kimberly was in care, she lived in seven different areas of the country and she was put into 11 different housing placements. During the five-year period, 13 different child services agencies were involved with Kimberly and not one of them followed up with her after she left the system. So let's just also remember that she was 17 when she died. So she was still under the age of 18 when she left the housing she was in and nobody followed up with her. Like, I just find that unbelievable. Yeah, no, and and it is. And she will be one of hundreds and hundreds of children who get failed in a similar way. But I do mm-hmm. think it's also important to acknowledge that this doesn't necessarily come from a place of malice. Like the care system in the UK is horrifically underfunded. It's horrifically short of like foster carers, people. It's got one of the highest turnovers of like any profession yeah. in the country. And I think it's because it is such a tough job when people have ridiculous caseloads and things so Mm. i do i do agree she was failed a hundred percent by the system but i think it for stuff like this i think it's not necessarily the same as some of like the other critiques like we have in cases um because i think it's it's so well known that it's an industry not an industry a a system that is failing do you know i mean like everybody knows it's fundamentally flawed mm-hmm. so i think yeah a hundred percent it is outrageous and and the outcomes of looked after children are awful like they aren't mm. yeah she isn't going to be 
unfortunately like the only story that ends this way and yeah. loads of them probably aren't like what was it in sociology they used to call it like the dark figure didn't they mm-hmm. where actually like there's what's reported versus what you know about and i think mm-hmm. in reality the picture for like looked after children is probably way worse than actually the numbers even suggest um just because yeah there isn't currently huge amounts of resources in place after like why when someone it turns 18 should they stop being their problem anyway do you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like it's not like children who still live with their biological families who Mm. will have like a support network for life probably to some degree Mm. um like that yeah there should be an ongoing support people should have been checking up on her but actually if they've got hundreds and hundreds of cases and yeah it's harder to track a kind of moving adult i guess than Mm. a very young child who yeah i don't know but it it, it is awful definitely and i don't know what it's like around the world but for sure in the uk it's it's really bad yeah and i guess that is evidenced by the fact that there was 13 different social services yeah exactly how is any kid meant to progress and like get better and like you say it'd be taken away from their family for that like alternative Mm. yeah no definitely so obviously Samantha's mum has made quite a big impact since this. Have there been any other like reforms from this case based mm. on like some of the failings that we've talked about? Um, so in short, no reforms have been made as far as I can see, but things kind of did move forward, but they kind of didn't result in anything, if that makes sense. So in 2013, there was a serious case review which investigated the Wakefield Local Authority's care of Kimberley it's an incredibly lengthy report i think it's almost 100 pages but basically the review looked into every agency that we just spoke about that had been involved with kimberly and it found that there were 24 separate official reports that detailed how kimberly had been sexually exploited since the age of 12 but despite these 24 separate reports no investigation was ever done the serious care review into kimberly's murder which was on the wakefield council website albeit it doesn't really seem to be there anymore uh, stated Mm. that there was a critical lack of partnership between key services across the country and it noted that the services had not taken a proactive child-centered approach with regards to the child exploitation that kimberly was suffering and obviously because it hadn't been investigated no arrests had been made and basically it's it's uh, 24 reports like yeah you can't fathom it like how like you can say make another report being like they didn't take a child-centered approach but it's sort of like what other what approaches are there whereby you don't act on 24 different reports well this is what's so horrible and so this like report like these reports they basically when they kind of like looked into all these agencies there was just like all these remarks from the child services stating that Kimberly wasn't helped because she was quote difficult to work with and she didn't want to change which is an absolutely outrageous thing to say she was incredibly vulnerable she was probably incredibly scared she had been groomed from a young age by older men you know details of what these services knew because they'd written reports about it they should have undertaken risk assessments and put a plan of care or something in place you know they should have ensured that there were systematic reviews in place to assess whether their care plan was working but instead they just left her because they thought I don't know it was too much of a pain to deal with like and I know I know that's like a very generalized comment for me to say I know that I'm just like speaking from emotion and I do understand that it is really seriously difficult but I just find it you know I find it so difficult there were so many reports done into this you know people really knew and just because she was, you know, quote unquote, difficult to work with, that's no excuse for mm. for not helping her. Yeah. 
Um, and do we know where Alyssa is now? Um, yeah, so she's done some interviews and basically she said that she continued to write poetry as kind of like an outlet for her grief and depression. Um, and in much, much happier news from this very, very horrible story, she found love in 2014. And in 2016, Alyssa and her partner James had a little baby girl who they named Aurora. Um, Alyssa said that losing her sister and her best friend almost destroyed her and that she'd felt so guilty for so long that she'd survived and they hadn't. She said that she spent three months in a psychiatric hospital and at the time she wished that she had died too. But she said that now, however, she looks to the future and James makes her feel really safe and loved and she said her daughter Aurora has turned her life around and she says she feels overwhelmed with love, which, yeah. I think that's a really nice, happy place to end what has otherwise been a really heartbreaking episode. It is, although I just have a couple of things to add. Yeah. Um, I think it goes without saying um, that if anyone listening has experienced or uh, any of, like, the behaviours in this episode sound Mm. familiar, please, please, please tell someone, whether it's a friend, a family member. Um, I know in the UK this week they've introduced uh, where if you go into Boots or other pharmacies Mm. and ask for Annie, um, you will get help or the police or other refuges um, and charities. And the other thing actually is just a a promo for um, a really... I thought, kind of powerful campaign that I found the other day. Um, Yeah, and you can go find them on Instagram. They're called She's Not Your Rehab. Mm. Um, And it's been set up by males and it's an uh, anti-domestic violence um, charity that was set up by someone who lost his mum, I think, to domestic violence. Uh, And the whole idea basically is sort of saying to men like, your partner is not your therapy. Like, she's not there to make you feel better for whatever you've been through um like it's not an excuse if you've had kind of a tough childhood um and yeah if you just go over like and have a look um I thought yeah I just think they're really I mean there's loads of causes I just think they're one that I just saw the other day that I think is really worthwhile um because because it is awful like this is such a prevalent thing I think like we've mentioned it before but there was a time when um domestic violence was killing more people in Australia than Covid was Mm. and when you think kind of how the world has rushed around to to sort out the coronavirus is awful to think that actually there's yeah something like domestic abuse is a more prevalent killer mm-hmm. still so yeah ask for help and yeah try and give it i think it's a really worthy cause doing we should all do what we can to support refuges and charities yeah, I echo all of that. I think it's so, so important. We will put the links um, for the She's Not Your Rehab um, pages in our description box and anything else that we can find that is useful, we'll also put that there as well. But yeah, please know that you're not alone if you are experiencing things like that. Um, and there are people out there who want to help. So please do reach out. All right, guys, thank you so, so much as always for listening and supporting our podcast. Uh, we really, really appreciate your support and we will see you next week. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye.